Welcome back, everybody. Hollywood Cole here with another Smooth Ramblings. Today, we have a very special guest here, Mr. Nick Thimianos, author, video game designer, ex-military. Awesome, man. What's going on? Not much, my friend. How you been? I've been doing well, man. Thanks for being on today. Yeah, I'm honored. I'm honored. So, do you got a screen name or anything? What is Oregon going to call you? Uh, uh, music by PSN names. Oh, PSN. Uh, all my gamer tags is Themianoid. Okay. So I just, uh, just switched it up in the last couple letters of my last name, and it's just stuck for the last couple of years. Cool. Themianoid. All right, man. Well, I'll just call you... Uh, what do you want to be called? Themioid or Nick? Uh, Nick is fine. <laughs> you, you've always known me as Nick, man, so we'll go with that. <laughs> all right. Cool, brother. So... Yeah, we met at work, man, and uh, kind of geeked out a little bit uh, on a few things. And you kind of mentioned game designer, gave me some books on how to do this. It's something I've always been interested in. I've been to, uh, you know, I went to Full Sail for uh, film production, and that's kind of been my mm-hmm. thing. I've always enjoyed that. But there was there was one. So so film uh, Full Sail at the time had film production, radio, television, or uh, radio production. Uh, what else? A uh, ton of stuff. One, how to be a roadie, oh. graphic design, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm actually pretty familiar with the uh, Full Sail, but they've they've really branched out. They even started having master's programs, but a lot of it is, like what you said, a lot of creative-based backgrounds, uh, like game design, film design, uh, script writing. Uh, oh, I was actually going to go back to Full Sail for script writing. They had like a master's So you went there. to Full Sail? I did not actually. I went to the Art Institute of Las Vegas. Okay. And that's where I went for game art and design. So it's like they just took basically the animation degree and they specialized it more towards the game design field. Okay. So your game design. So what I was getting at was that they did have a mm-hmm. game design at Full Sail and they gave mm-hmm. you a laptop. Well, you didn't give it to you, you paid for it. I mean, I think it's a year and a half for an associate's for game design. I think it was like 60 grand or something. Yeah, and, sounds about right. <laughs> so, but they're like, well, it's not the game design you think. It's more coding and this kind of stuff. So the one that you specialize in is, is like kind of an animation or you're a coder as well, right? So I was more of a scripter, but so um, at least with the artist, like, obviously they're too, uh, what you talk about Full Sail, they did more of the, the coding aspect or the program aspect. They, uh, being that it was Art Institute, it's more on the art side, but we had uh, an exposure with all of that. Uh, there was only like, uh, you know, a couple introductory courses when in terms of like C++ coding and actually scripting, but they branched out. We did do the animations and we had different instructors from all the different fields and everything that they gave us uh, a whole bunch of tools to learn and work with. And then we just kind of branched out from there. So it was kind of like a, I wouldn't say a la carte, but it was definitely more of like a buffet of in your face of like all the different fields that you can partake in with that. Okay. So, so you, you set out to want to be, you know, a game designer. Mm-hmm. And so did you ever design anything or some indie games or anything like that? So um, nothing commercially. Uh, we did indie stuff. Nothing took off. Uh, it was like it ended up just being like whatever we did learn, we started just kind of being in the mod scene. We did have a few of the guys that was in our class that they got to branch out and uh, two, three, I think about three of my friends actually got hired at Petroglyph, one of the local studios in Westwood, uh, the, one of the local studios in Las Vegas that was from the previous people that used to work at Westwood Studios. And they were, the, some of them are doing pretty successful over there. But I did, when I finally graduated from college, so that's when the economy tanked and that's when I was like, okay, well, I think I'm going to have to enlist in the Air Force at that point. Yeah. So is it pretty difficult to, you know, there's always a part of me sometimes that go, you know, I really enjoy video games. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind going back and being some type of game designer or something. Just, you know, every once in a while I get that wild hair. What is, what what advice do you have to anybody that decides, you know, I kind of want to design games. The biggest advice I can give for that is building a portfolio. Obviously, Knowing people kind of gets your foot in the door, but really it's your work that speaks for itself. Um, A lot of... So your work being like coding, you know, so let's say I go knock on the door of uh, Squaresoft or something or Square Enix Mm -hmm. or something. Say, hey, I want a job. Mm -hmm. Here's my resume. I mean, I have nothing. I just got school. And so... 
are they going to say, well, how do you program this? Or is it just like, man, a lot of those things. So the, the scary thing about the game design field, and I think that was what's uh, pretty disheartening, at least for me, but I was young, uh, much younger than I didn't really think about it. It's like a lot of it requires in industry experience or they expect you to have a title release. So how are you supposed to get hired if you don't have that experience? And yeah. that's part of where who, you know, and getting your foot in the door that way. Uh, a lot has changed over the last 10 years since I've been out of that type of uh, culture. So it might be a little bit easier. It might be even harder, but it's really having a portfolio. Like how are you going to stand out amongst, you know, thousands of people that are trying to apply for this job? Like if you want to be an artist, you have to have tons of art. So it's not like just conceptual art you want to have, you want to branch out like that. They want to see things from start to finish. Like they kind of, uh, from the advice that I've been given is they want to see how you can provide through the entire production. So pre-production, you have your sketches and your thumbnails and your concept art. So like, if you want to be a character artist, how you do that? Okay. So you have, um, the character art of like how the guy looks, okay, what do they look like in different outfits? What do they look like with different, uh, emotions and how do they look like when they're angry, they're sad. What, what is their, like their, their anti version, like their, the anti flash, you know, if you got flash and the anti flash, how do they look like they want you to know that person intimately. And then from there, how do they look on a finalized concept and then take it to, let's say you want to be a, uh, take it to a 3d model. So build them in a 3d model. How do they look like from there, uh, modeled out now you could animate them and stuff like that. But if you're not a strong animator, it's suggested to not do that. So it doesn't hurt you. But if you're just like the character model from, you know, start to finish of these sketches to this full 3d character, you know, that's the kind of stuff they want to see. Um, if you're trying to be like a level designer, building levels, getting the experience in all the different game engines. So you have so many now. You got Unreal, you have Unity now, which is pretty amazing. You have uh uh Infinity Wards. Quake. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh Infinity Ward stuff uh, with id software, you know, uh, if you're pretty f- familiar with all the id uh type engines as well, so Quake. Um right. trying to think off the top of my head. Uh but like the biggest ones like I said would be um Unity and Unreal. So that and that brings for from me that's not a I mean I did a little bit of programming just in Java mm-hmm. and of course like the HTML and CSS and all that good stuff PHP mm-hmm. but never any um, actual so when you say a new engine so if I'm mm-hmm. a C plus programmer and mm-hmm. I step into ID software mm-hmm. they have a whole their whole new engine is a whole new program language is that is that safe to say or am I off base? Um. I wouldn't say it's a whole new uh, lang- language that you're learning. When I'm talking about engine, it's like the actual what is running the game itself. Uh, they might have their own, pri- uh, depending on big studios like id Software, or Blizzard, and all that. They might have their own proprietary software that they use to run the games that not many other studios can uh, work with. But I mean, like Unreal used uh, their their writing software is called Unreal Script, and Unreal Script is pretty much based off Java. So it's kind of the same concept and everything like that. But uh, the engine itself, it's like we're talking about, it, 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 it's what compiles all the assets and you have everything there in order for it to have the game run off that. Okay. So it's just its own program, if you will. Okay. And so you mentioned uh, character design and mm-hmm. like kind of a pre-production phase. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they have the actual level design and then... Uh, so I'm kind of kind of thinking here while I'm, while I'm talking about which one I ought to get into first. I know in the film industry, it was a big deal to get paid to do the job. In other words, like you get a production assistant. The union at the time, $150 a day is the minimum you can pay somebody. So the production assistant is the bottom of the barrel on a, on a film uh, set or commercial or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he gets paid $150 a day. But if you got paid, that was you're already ahead of the game because most people would just do it for free. Mm-hmm. Because there's kind of interning in there, and you're trying to get your name in there. Is that kind of the same for the video game industry? And if I'm be a, I want to be an intern at ID Software. It's just going to help me say I was a part of this project or whatever. Did they do now, that? I, I wouldn't know with the interning because unfortunately I did not get in the mainstream uh, 
uh, part of the industry. But I mean, I think a lot of that uh, deals with getting paid. Like if you're not getting paid, uh, it would definitely have to be with like independent developers and stuff like that. There are some studios out there where, you know, you kind of uh, you self-publish or finance like, you know, a lot of the a lot of the designers in the studio will pull in their own money to kind of keep the game afloat. It's yeah. very risky, but for some people's paid off now uh a lot of indie developers now are using like gofundme uh kickstarter and i think with fig is another one so okay. like a lot of it's been uh, like obsidian they've been doing that the last couple of games that they had and they've been truly successful which is admirable um uh you know then you got the other studios that they have different publishing houses that they funnel the money to the studio but then they have to meet certain milestones before they can get the next uh, chunk of money so then that's where like the balancing act of how much how much of the resources are they pulling with the amount of money set for that specific time period so um, with interning and everything like that it just really depends uh you know getting in the industry sometimes they start off as like a, a a tester you know a quality assurance so you could be for working hourly you know uh in this given day they give you a document and then your whole job that day is walking against all the walls in the game just to see if your guy's <laughs> going to fall right through it. You know, some, <laughs> right. some of it can be pretty mundane and then, you know, you find wacky things and then you provide your feedback. Okay. At this section, it did this, maybe it should do this, you know, so that's where they get. And I think that's where they kind of build up from there, you know, whether they get paid more, or they go on salary doing more job specific type of things for the, the game. Okay. Yeah, that was like everybody's dream job as a kid. Like, mm -hmm. I want to be a tester. You think you're just going to be getting paid to play the game through, but it's like you said, very mundane. Mm -hmm. Like, I got to jump in this hole 50 times, six different ways, and make yep. sure that it's uh, nothing wonky happens in the game. Sometimes it can be fun, but there are other times <laughs> where it's just like, okay, I have been in the same room for a week straight. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> I guess that's better than laying bricks or something, man, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,. So, uh, let's see here. So what, what other aspects of it are there? So you said the pre-production, you got the level design. Is that kind of the same? Well, so that's just a level design, but the coder, there's some type of, uh, actual programmer. So, you know, which is funny is like, you know, with the military background, I think I know with a lot of the listeners, they might not uh, be able to correlate it, but I mean, at least for me to you kind of think of like, uh, the whole cycle from, you know, like building, a schedule for an aircraft to go out and then, you know, do their mission and then they come back and then, but you have like that whole circle of all these different divisions and, and units and, uh, specific people to be in that part of the, uh, to be part of that specific mission for that aircraft. Right. So it's kind of like the same mentality for the game. So yeah, you have your pre-production crew and then, so a lot of it's going to be, uh, everybody's got something to do with this pre-production. You got your artists that are doing all the conceptual art. They're going to build how this world is right. And build the people and what they look and what they do items, uh, armor, whatever have you, you know, then you have your designers that they might be, uh, you got the ones that are writing the script. They're building the documents on, uh, uh like the Bible, if you will of basically building the lore for the game. Um, you know, and with that, they, they give that document to the artists and they take that and they're like, okay, well, this is what they want. Okay. They want something grand and majestic here. They're going to make a whole bunch of different concept art for that grand and majestic thing. And they're going to go back and forth while they're talking between the, you know, um, between the designers and the artists. And they're going to go back and forth, back and forth, just to kind of iron everything out until they, agree with what's going on and uh at the same time depending on the type of game that they're having they're either going to have like the programmers are rebuilding an engine or they're going to use a, a an existing one and maybe make some tweaks uh to accommodate the whether it's new features new uh new biomes or whatever have you so they're they're the ones that are actually going to try and make things work and then as that pre-production goes now to the actual production of the game, that's where you're going to start like seeing the alpha where they do like the tech demos and trying to see how it works or seeing, getting the ideas on paper, if you will, you know, obviously seeing it uh, come to fruition 
you know, them putting placeholders in until they kind of get a feel of what's going on. And then again, that kind of goes back to the drawing board of what works and what doesn't work. So, and also where they're at on the timeline, because sometimes they might have to cut things or they bite off more than they can chew. And then it just kind of, is like a, a, a spiral, if you will. And then as it starts, uh, it starts getting cleaner, that spiral gets a little bit wider so they don't have to go back as much, you know, and yeah. then it kind of cleans up as it goes. That's pretty cool. As you know, you think about game design, at least I do, and I'm thinking, okay, I got to le- learn coding. I got to learn some graphic design, but that's not all it is to it. Like you're saying, there's actually a, a guy that just comes up with a, the story. What is this game about? What are the characters? How are they going to interact? It's, it's like a storytelling uh, you know, aspect to it, like a screenwriter, right? Mm-hmm. And so exactly. Somebody that's super creative is a very uh, obviously a good asset to these uh, to a programmer. And then the guys, and you know, you think about there's a book I talk about a lot called Masters of Doom. Have you actually read that one? I haven't, but I'll write it down. Masters of Doom. Yes, yeah, awesome. It's the id software guys, uh, John Romero and John Carmack. And Carmack, of course, is the programmer, and he's always pushing the limits of what a computer can do. You know, they had the uh, you know computers didn't side scroll. You know, back then that when Mario came out in '85 or whatever, it's always a single screen. Uh, boards you kind of move over the screen shifts like Zelda mm-hmm. or something um, so Carmack was like no I'm going to figure this out and you know they, they, they programmed games for a computer game uh, computer or video game magazine so they, would, they the magazine itself would release certain demos of games that they're kind of programming so that's what mm-hmm. they did before they were with uh, ID and so Carmack stayed up one night and just like hammered out a Mario Brothers on the on the computer and showed Romero, like, hey, look what I got. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. We need to make a make a video game. So that's kind of came up with a Commander Keen mm-hmm. and uh, kind of started that with a shareware. I think at one point, there was kids like 22 years old are making like, uh, what was it with a Commander Keen? It was something like 15 grand a day, or not a day, 15 grand a month. And then they released Wolfenstein and Doom. And now they're making like $130,000 a month, you know, because of the shareware, which it was... You release a, a fraction of the game if you want with one or two levels. So you want to play more, you pay a dollar, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you play more. And it, it is an interesting thing. Only like two percent of the people that actually played it paid for it, but they were still making like hundred twenty grand a day. But anyway, Romero was more of the guy that came up with the uh, the cool story. He wanted to put all the cool um, secrets and stuff in it. And Carmack was always pushing the limits. And if you'll notice, I didn't re- 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 uh, recognize this until after I read the book, but Wolfenstein 3D, you know, that was a new concept, this 3D game. Mm-hmm. And the way that he did it is he just placed the, the, the way that it would work on these computers. All you'll see is the walls and doors. If you'll notice, there's no floor or ceiling in the game. And you don't re- recognize that until you start playing it again. You go, there may be a, a floor, but I don't think so. I think it's the same color. And all you're really doing is walking through the hallways, but they just kind of manipulated it enough. But anyway, the point is they had a designer, just like you said, a guy that just drew out, drew out all the characters and stuff. Romero thought of the cool stuff and McCarmack was the programmer. Mm-hmm. So it was a perfect team. I think they had a team of like four and they just sat in the apartments and ate pizza and collected money. It sounded like an awesome life. <laughs> but uh, it's a great it book, been, yeah. <laughs> right? I'll check it out. Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with uh, with id software and how the way they do things. And yeah, like you said, uh, uh, Ramiro, like just he killed it with like all the technological advances that he did for the game industry, especially with them. Um, they were one of the few that uh, kind of, I think, when Doom Three came out, they were really pushing normal mapping. So, and, and that's what also, like, you started seeing a lot of games, like, pick up that, uh, that technique. If I might be, I might be wrong, but I, if I remember, if I remember hearing it, that they were kind of one of the, the pioneers with getting normal maps in. in exactly. Games, so. That's exactly right. Cause that, that was what Doom did. It gave that floor and ceiling and that's that all surrounding thing. And then I think Quake was the one after that. And it just kind of, uh. It was like real fast or something. I don't. I don't know the whole technics of how that one advanced everything, but it was a new engine and it was uh, cutting edge, you know. Right. So that's pretty cool and cool to see um, how that works. But so knowing what you know about the about the industry, you got guys, that, you know, friends that are working with the big studios now, right? Uh, I have. I know that I have friends that are in uh, in a couple of the studios. I have friends that are in. Uh, and Petroglyph, like I said, and then I got uh, some that are like an independent or just smaller, smaller studios. And I have another one that's in Warner Brother Games. He's in one of the studios. Warner, Warner Brothers or Monolith. He was he uh, he works up in uh, 
uh, worked on Shadow War and Shadow Mordor. Okay. Which are my guilty pleasure games. Like I, I <laughs> love it. Like if you know, stress stress release is like the best game ever. <laughs> nice. So, so um, a lot of people. There's a there was a guy that I was uh, working with back in the day, and he's a programmer too. He's out now, and he actually programmed a couple of apps. And I was like, dude, let's do a let's do a game, you know. And so let's make one for Xbox 360. And he's just like, dude, you got to have a team of people. And I'm like, so essentially, if I just want to make an Xbox 360 game, by the time I got finished coding it, if I'm going solo or dual, it, you know, it would be like obsolete, you know, because Xbox, oh, yeah. you know, whatever it come out. So people don't realize that. So these indie, indie games, and let me ask you, so a game like Shovel Knight. Okay. How long would it take a good programmer, or, you know, what, what, I mean, just guess. I mean, we, we don't know, but just I know it's a roundabout, but a good programmer, a good team to develop, and how many people would be on the team to develop a game like Shovel Knight? Eight-bit Honestly, looking. I wouldn't know. I never played Shovel Knight. I'm very familiar with the game itself. Okay. But even even though the game is, like, low-poly and everything like that, that um, in comparison to, like, more high-fidelity, you know, 3D-type games, I think it's just about the same it might be a little bit shorter in terms of the art department but i mean they still have to it's it's still the same process of what they do everything and it's also it, it's like you said if, if they got a good crew i mean they can get done with it i would say within a you know a year or two at least getting the base game done but i mean it's a lot of it is like the q a and cleaning up the bugs that you yeah. know some once you clean up one bug you know 10 more are going to come out and then you got to iron those out and um, a big thing is, is like when you QA, you want like a whole bunch of different people to play it and purposely break it. Because usually when you're the developer and you build this game, you're going to play the game how it's supposed to be. And you're not going right. to catch those things. So that's why you have like an outside party, like the QA guys doing it so they could be able to find those things and do what they're not meant to so that they could fix it. So, uh, like I said, you got to have a really good team, but I mean, anything can happen. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you can't, you can't really put a specific timeline on things like that. It's the weirdest thing when you talk about programming. And I remember, uh, like I was saying, the Java that I started, uh, for information technology, uh, degree, it, you know, we're just typing away in Java and you compile it. And it, you know, this one particular, I can't remember what this program was, but it's something like, you know, here's today's date. And if you put, what is, you know, 6,000 days, 6,120 days from now, what day will it be? What year, you know, and it, it would program and it, it had to program leap years and all this kind of stuff into it. And then it would uh, work and it'd tell you, Hey, this is going to be, you know, the year 21, you know, whatever, 47, and it'll be a Thursday and it'll be, you know, this date. And so it worked fine. But if you just put like a rant uh, for like, 10 years ahead, it like would not, you know, just random. Like what, why wouldn't it work with this number? The code, it, the code says it should work, but for whatever reason, it won't work with this number and stuff like that was just so frustrating to me. It's like, Oh my gosh, I'm just a terrible programmer. Then I was like, wait a minute, this, this is programming. This is what it is. You figure out the bugs and go. And I'm like, dude, this just drives me up the wall because when I read the logic and it looks like it's supposed to work, but it doesn't, mm -hmm. I, it just, it just kills me. Yeah. That's like, uh, it, I can never I've done very light programming got to learn C++ and it's like one of those things like they had us do in school because I didn't get to do it uh, beyond that it's just like okay come up with this code honestly could not but I mean you can give me you could give me like a whole bunch of code and I could read it and I could sometimes find the error just by reading everything it's just, right. it, that's something I catch but Tell me to come up with code by myself. Forget it. I would have to go online and Google what I, you know, what I need or what sh I should write for something specific, and I might get it to work. But I think that's what was nice of being a scripter, which is a little bit different because I mean, you work with the engine, but it's more like you already have your conditions and your variable statements and booleans and all that kind of stuff. And like with scripting, all you have to do is like, okay, when you know X player enters this door play this sound and then enable this cinematic. So you already have all your resources. You're just kind of piecing yeah. things together. So then, uh, but let's say like, better. <laughs> exactly. So I, I didn't mind scripting cause it went, it went hand in hand with doing the actual levels. And that's something I really liked. It's like, uh, I was, I really loved working on levels themselves 
like blocking them out, getting the pacing done right, and 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 all that. But like programming, you, I commend all programmers like uh, just for how well and how hard they work on trying to get things to to go smoothly for the game itself. Yeah. So one more thing about this, if you can explain it, and mm-hmm. then we'll move on. But it's just something you you take a game like Mega Man or Shovel Knight as well. I was thinking about it. The controls are so crisp, so responsive. Mm-hmm. And other games don't have that. How is it that some, you know, it seems like the, the logic is just, hey, if you push this, he goes here. If you push this, he goes here. What makes a game have good controls? I mean, is it just because it has crappy controls because it has to compile so much code at one time and it can't be as responsive as others? Or it, I think it has a lot to do with just like how you compute certain values and so like it could be anything from movement speeds and how quick the responses are with uh button button pressing and 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 what they do so um you know whether it's like pressure sensitive and how it reacts to the pressure sensitivity uh, it's just i think it has to do a lot with uh, tweaking the parameters of whatever you want to do so if you want to if you know your guy's going to be moving like let's say a meter and a half a second you know and that's how quick he moves but then you notice that they might be moving too quick or too slow then that's when you start finagling the the values you know you want to do it incrementally like okay if you do it to the extreme where he's moving now five and a half meters a second you're going to see if he's pretty much sprinting you yeah. know across whatever he's doing so um i think with a lot of those that also boils down to with uh the the planning of the game like how they want the game to be played so then if it's something that's going to be very twitch based like Mega Man or Shovel Knight with the gameplay that's something that they have to do with uh, the coding aspect and the gameplay aspect of how are things are going to work in favor of the player with the way that they use a controller and whatnot so so I was noticing I forgot you got all these tats man mm. a lot of gaming tats what do you got um. So, as shoes? you already know, I'm a huge Fallout fan, so I got a couple Fallout ones. But yeah, got the so mask MK. What is it, the MK2? Uh, no, this was uh, the T51B power armor helmet. This is from Fallout One. So okay. I'm a fan from the first one. Then, of course, I'm a big D and D guy. So the Nat 20 on the right, uh, Nat 20 on the left. Here, got some more Fallout guys. That's about it, really. Nice. What's the leg right there on your right arm? So I see a leg coming out. Oh yeah. Th- so I've had the same tattoo artist do all my tattoos. Yeah, and she wanted to do a Star uh, Star Wars Darth Vader pinup girl. Yeah, so, I let her, so <laughs> she she drew this one specifically for me, so she drew it, and that was about so it. So it's really. a pinup girl with a red lightsaber with a Darth Vader helmet yeah. helmet with a cowboy hat on the top. Oh, I love it! Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's awesome. It's, it's yeah. cool, man. Yeah, so Fallout fan, um, mm-hmm. Mass Effect. You, do you have a Mass Effect hat? Yeah, I got the N seven. Um, that was the only one that she's never, she's never done. Uh, that one I did in Orlando, just like on a, like a random trip to Orlando, but I have the N7 insignia on my chest. And then, uh, I got the big Batman logo, like right in the middle of my chest here. Cool. So, yeah. So you got the D and D, uh, shoulder dice. Mm-hmm. So you're a big D and D player still, or back in the day or, you know, it's funny. So when I was in uh, game design, I never played D&D growing up. I was, uh, you know, I grew up still when nerds were stigmatized and and bullied constantly. Like now it's cool to be a nerd and everything. But so there was always like that weird hierarchy of nerds. Like if you play D&D or magic, you're just at the lowest of the of the food chain. So I try to I try to be fake and try to be cooler than I really was. Like, okay, I was a game nerd. So I, I, I hung out with that. But when I started getting into game design and I realized like a lot of the stuff, a lot of design and everything, like you want to play D and D, you want to know the mechanics of it because that just, it, it things start clicking better that way. And so I started learning, we never got an opportunity to play together, but I would read like the books and everything. And then when, I finally enlisted in the military and I went to Germany. I actually met a group of people that played D&D. So I got to play for the first time ever with this big group of all these nerds from different walks of life all in the military. And I fell in love with it. And I've been playing. I still play. We're, um, we play on Roll20.net, you know, because we have everybody's all geographically so, uh, separated. But um, So it's like a program you can get on and just like a, you're, it's like a, we're doing now 
kind of, or you can play with just having a yeah. FaceTime with everybody or whatever. Yeah. So we use, uh, we use Skype, uh, to talk to everybody, but then we're on the website, uh, roll20.net and it has everything there. Our, our, our buddy DMs and we get to move our, our characters and everything like on the, on the page itself. And yeah, it's a blast. Uh, I, we're doing, uh, the Numenera setting right now and I think we're almost done and I'm playing like this very uh incompetent like character like he is <laughs> he is like uh just uh, he it's surprising that he, he knows how to breathe kind of character and like the dumb it's luck been, keeps happening to him or whatever exactly that... <laughs> and it's so wonderful because like I am like this wild card and like people are like don't touch the red button okay i'll press it three times you know like it's things like that that i'll do and i'll I'll make it that much more difficult for our group but it's just he's just a constant comedic relief and it's something that i never done before i i I just like now i love playing the wild card but like the next like campaign that whatever we do like i want to be a little bit more of a serious character to see how that works out yeah but it's uh yeah i love i love D D. it's something that um is definitely a big part of my life now. And I don't think I, I, I will continue to play as long as there's somebody to play with. Is that your favorite genre? Like uh, fantasy with the swords and magic, or is it more sci-fi or. Uh, I play, one? I, you know, I've, I'm always partial to, you know, traditional, you know, Western fantasy and stuff. Like you said, with swords, elves and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I mean, we played different, uh, I played different settings. I've done star Wars, I've done. We've done a Fallout. We've done Shadowrun. It's oh uh, Shadowrun. That's that yeah. would be mine. Yeah, we we didn't we didn't do Shadowrun in the traditional sense with just the one d six dice. We did um, modern d twenty rule set just in a Shadowrun setting, which apparently uh, was actually really fun. So was, I guess cyberpunk, if you will. Um, but uh, and the new Monero has its own. It's a it it runs on a D twenty system, but it's a little bit a little bit more different. But uh, I don't really don't know how to explain it. But like you have like these efforts that you can place into whatever skill you do. There's not like you can specialize your guy however you want it, but you're not really constricted either. It's more it's more imaginative base. So it's it's a lot of fun though. So uh, what did you think about the cyber? You watched the um, E three or did you keep it with that at all? Uh, I honestly have not followed much of E3 this year because of my work now. Uh, just all the my hours have kept me up early in the morning, and then usually I'm asleep by the afternoon. Uh, but I mean, there's a couple of things that I caught. I did see the cyber cyber uh, cyberpunk. It is cyberpunk. I yeah. saw the announcement. I didn't. I don't want to follow anything on that specifically because I want to be surprised with that game because I do yeah. like uh cd projects games like obviously the witcher i yes. i love them all so i just uh i there if there's a game that i'm actually absolutely interested in i try not to follow as much as i can with it so then i could be you know like wowed literally you know yeah um yeah because those kind of games you know it's going to be good a cd project red witcher 3 is just crushing it i mean it's one of my favorite games and You've heard me say it if you've listened to this podcast at all, but just the amount of content that you get for sixty bucks. I mean, I remember bought, I bought all the expansions. I haven't even touched them just because I wanted to show support for. I mean, I felt like man, I, sixty bucks. You spent a lot of time on this game. I don't even know how far deep I am into it, but got to be a hundred hours, at least a hundred hours into it already. Witcher three, and I had to mm-hmm. delete it off of my uh, PlayStation four to put another game on there. I'm starting to play Horizon Zero Dawn. I had to, to, to delete. You know, you still keep the save file, so when I do want to play it again. But yeah, I hated that. Cause like, one day I'm gonna get back into Witcher. One day I'm gonna get back into Witcher. But I just turned it off for so long. I, I have yet to finish three like you. And honestly, it took me at least two plus years for each Witcher uh, for the first two Witcher games to beat. Oh and yeah. It because there's just so much, and I loved it. Like the first one, not as much, but it's just there. It's it's a lot of story to grasp in comparison to all these other. Uh, all these other games, there's just so much lore. It's so deep and yeah. like meaningful, especially. So right. So you actually wrote a book, mm-hmm. a fantasy book. Yeah. Uh, Figarian Legacy. Yeah, Figarian Legacies Chrono. Uh, that that's that was a that was a trip in itself. That was really fun to do. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I mean, remember you had it? I own the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Figarian Legacy. So Chrono is just a character within this world. 
mm-hmm. that you've created, and mm-hmm. he's uh, and this is his his part of the the story, right? Correct. Okay, so tell us a little bit about it, man. What is it? Uh, what kind of universe is it? So it's a uh, again traditional uh, fantasy setting. I didn't. Uh, I try to keep it unique in a sense where there's some greek undertones you know because of my greek background you know growing up and everything like that and you know typically when you see a lot of uh western fantasy games it's you know very tolkien-esque very you know britannia kind of thing and i mean that there it is there but it's a little bit of a mismatch of things but uh take it takes place in the world uh, called anal and the whole basis of the story is is uh chrono the main character he gets separated from his family after an attack on his uh, village and he is trying to find them and uh, during his search he comes across a magical artifact that it uh imbues his left arm with uh, these magical runes that it makes his left arm indestructible or you know w- uh, impervious to damage so he uses it kind of like a shield if you will and uh, it catches the attention of the antagonists in the game and they want that power that he has so they can try and manipulate it for something greater and so he's getting hunted while he is looking for his family and then uh, gets caught up in like this massive civil war that's been brought out and uh, you know of course you know trying to save the day at the same time while looking for his family and finding his place in this world now that he has become this new uh, hero. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a trip. I mean, the idea initially started when I was like 17. So, I mean, I guess writing the book, it took about 10 years to 10, 11 years to actually write. But I mean, the actual, for what, is out now it took about four years to actually write the book because i when i first joined the military is when this the solid idea came down to paper and then you know a couple deployments and a pcs here and there this got what got me to finish it yeah it's it's, i love the way that it starts off when he's in his his mother and father and his father's like teaching him some things you know like oh he's going to rely on you know you could tell he's going to rely on this later his father's like a blacksmith the way you describe the the blacksmith. I'm just recalling all this as you were telling that story. I just remember it was just like this dude writes exactly the way, describes exactly the way that I think of this type of world, you know, with the blacksmith. And he's just sweating the muscles, veins popping out. And he's just like, this dude is a, a lifelong blacksmith just by the way that you described. Because I remember asking you, how did you write? You know, what do you think about? And you were just talking about what do you, how the, you know, when you describe a sword, you know, how does it feel in your hand? How would it feel when you swing it? And just the stuff that you talked about. And then uh, Chrono leaves after the attack and he starts meeting his, you know, these other people that kind of get into the party, you know, the kind of traditional thing. Oh, so good. I remember uh, reading it and I had to put it down when we, and I moved and I had like, you know, a ton of books. I just got to get in there and unload all these things again and finish this thing up, man. But it's a great, uh, a great story so far. And, uh, so you can get it on Amazon now. Is that you're still selling it on Amazon, or? So I actually took uh, I took it down. You can't get it on the pay on demand because I self published it. Uh, I think you could still get it on ebook. I haven't been making any copies or sales because what I've been doing now is like after I wrote it, um, you know, one of the things that I wasn't too uh, happy about with my book is that because I couldn't afford an, uh, an actual professional editor, I had to do a lot of it kind of homegrown and, and have other people proofread. And there were a couple of, you know, like glaring, uh, miswrites, like on a page or two that really bothered me because I'm yeah. pretty hard and self-critical with my work. And, um, something that I noticed while I was writing the sequel, it was that I've, I personally felt like I'd left plot holes that I didn't think would be very easy to explain. So I kind of scrapped that idea and I started rewriting the entire book again. And oh, wow. so now, yeah, so now I'm rewriting this whole, uh, rewriting that whole book. So what you have, the best way I could explain it is like, you know how George Lucas, when he started Star Wars, it was the Star Wars. And then there was Anakin Starkiller and there wasn't a Luke Skywalker yet. And it was like yeah. a completely different story. And that's kind of how it is. So what you have now is my, the Star Wars. And I am currently trying to write A New Hope. Okay. Uh, so okay, cool. Yeah, so I have I've I've written a lot of a lot of stuff for the new book now. Uh, uh, I've even written prologues of all the main characters. So like the villain has a new prologue. He's more humanized, but you see why he's such a demon kind of thing. Uh, 
you have uh, now like Thal, the, the, the elvish rogue, like now you see what he was going through and what put him on the run and, and what uh, to get him to where he's going. And then, you know, uh, Chrono now is not even Chrono anymore. His actual name is Durai uh, because I felt that, uh, you know, like just the character evolved so much is not even Chrono anymore. Oh, wow. uh, I felt like he deserved to be a different person altogether. And, uh, but I mean, it's still going to be the same, the same concept, you know, he's going to still find the relic and he's still going to get imbued on his arm. He's still going to be saving the day, but there's just going to be some, uh, some changes that will kind of, uh, I think enhance the story much better and, uh, I, more grounded, if you will. Uh, I mean, there's still going to be fantastical elements. It's, uh, I, I feel like I owe it to myself now that I'm much more of an experienced writer that I can, uh, enhance it. And I still, my, still, my, my goal is still to like open this universe up for other people to contribute and add to it and, you know, and, and enhance this world, you know, like different locations where like, Oh yeah, I would love this new continent. Yeah. You could talk all about it. These are the things that I would like to see in this continent have at it. You know, that's, yeah. uh, something I would like to go in sometime when it's out. That's cool. So, but you are you're not selling the old book anymore, or it is, you said it's on ebooks. Can people get it if they want to check out I th- the Star I think Wars on, version? Uh, I think can get it on ebook format. Um, nobody has confirmed it with me. Uh, there have been a couple of times where you know, like just a friend of mine, like, "Hey, man, I've been trying to get your book. How can I get it?" It's like, "Oh, well, here's a digital copy. I got it for you." You know, so then I'll just email him the PDF of the book. Uh, yeah. I, what my plan is is that once I get this rewrite done get that marketing and get that selling well, I'll bring back the original book so they could see the difference and they could have it. And then, uh, you know, and then, uh, go from there. And, and also a big thing too, that the reason why I wanted to do the rewrite, and I think you've noticed it, um, in, uh, the original book, like the first half, you could tell where my game design background was. Yeah. Like it's very, it's very, uh, designery, I guess, if you will, like it's, it's very methodical and then it starts getting you can start seeing like when the second act starts that i'm getting in my groove and then by the third act you see that i'm finally learning how to kind of master my craft in writing um you know i mean everybody needs to improve and stuff but you can see the gradual improvement that i do as i write the book and i think now i need to have that uh same consistency that you would have from like acts two and three all the way around, and um, and like I said, I do owe it to myself to to do it correctly. Oh yeah, man, it'd be great, dude. I'm looking forward to, to that that version of it and all the prologues of the characters. Uh, like I said, I love the intro. I knew right away. I was like, yes, this intro and the way the intro be, meaning the first like chapter, not just a first paragraph or two, but how you describe the village and the people there. So this is really good. Um, you know, you see these writers like not to, not to dive too deep into this, I guess, but like GRR. Uh, Martin and, and you know the Game of Thrones books they're just so colorful when he, you know it's just unbelievable that somebody can write that colorful about it but that is a very difficult skill and then you go back and read and I don't, I don't mean to to pick on a author necessarily because I used to love his books but Terry Goodkind mm-hmm. and you go back and read that and you're like gosh and it's just so you know shallow compared to somebody that's just rich as like gr martin of course he's mm-hmm. a he's a kind of an anomaly kind of like a token of the modern era or, or an american token um mm-hmm. but anyway that's certainly a skill that i think uh you possess better than uh, most is to be able to describe those those worlds and whatnot just that every little detail is really really nice well, I appreciate it. I, I think a lot had to do with, uh, you know, obviously being at the Art Institute and stuff like that. But one of my really good friends, the guy that did the cover for my book, um, who I'm still close friends with, he, whenever I would write something, he is a very visual and artistic person, you know, mindset. So he even tells me, like, when something doesn't convey well enough, like, he'll tell me it kind of, it'd be like muddy or something. And he's like, make me feel it, make me understand it, like make me make me actually see it. And so then I started doing that and doing that and doing that. So then, like you said, like that, like feeling the heat coming from the forge, like how the the tonic is like, you know, the the sweat from the tonic is clinging to his chest. He smells the the sulfur, you know, uh, being burned in the air. You know, I started thinking of things that I would 
I feel like I would see. And like um, one of the big things, too, is like conveying emotion. I mean, if you don't convey emotion uh, well enough in a, in a particular page, then things could fall flat or it just feels forced or uh, dis disingenuine, you know. I might have mm -hmm. said that wrong, but you know, like you want everything to feel genuine. And, um, I think one of the more powerful moments in my book was when Chrono finds his sister and it's a very harrowing experience when he does see her and what she's going through. And what I wanted to do is like make him f try to make him feel like he was in the middle of a panic attack that he just lost his, his, uh, mind momentarily. Like he's just completely goes feral at what happens. And, um, I try to get myself in that mindset, you know, like breathing heavy, feeling like I'm losing myself. And then as I'm writing it or, you know, listen to some really, really like emotional kind of music to put me in that place as well. And I just kind of write it and then I take my time and then I just write it. Then I just go over and over making sure that that's what, uh, what I'm trying to convey. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a big part of it, man. And I guess that kind of ties into the gaming design to some degree, like we mentioned, with people having to write a story and obviously the, the, the better that you can put yourself into these characters that you're designing, the better you're going to understand your own world and be able to convey that to any type of game designer, or a game studio that wants to create a world. Cause that's kind of the, that's the, the hardest thing to do, but it's the most lucrative. I mean, you just look at star Wars, you look at fallout, you look at the witcher. I mean, any of these, you know, are the game of Thrones are all in a world set, you mm -hmm. know, a, a kind of a encapsulating world. Uh, what a word I'm trying to is something that you know really keeps everybody. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Oh, captivating. Captivating. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. A captivating okay. world to where, um, but then then cool stuff happens in the captivating world. You know, that's mm -hmm. really the key to it. Mm -hmm. And so, but anyway, uh, so I wanted to touch. So you you've commented a little bit on our Facebook page about mm -hmm. some things or whatnot. Uh, mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, stuff to bring up on there but uh you said you didn't really keep it with e3 too much but we, you did comment on a couple of things with the final fantasy 7 yes so we mentioned this on a podcast that it will be released by the time this one comes out the e3 review podcast the um square did not even mention final fantasy 7 at all what's going hear... on over there <laughs> you know i i think that they have a lot riding on it, to be honest. Uh, you know, that that is... Seven was the reason... I mean, you know, you got six with, you know, Final Fantasy three or Final Fantasy six in Japan. Like, that was, you know, like one of their best games. But seven is what really put, you know, Final Fantasy on the American side of the right. map. You know, and uh, I think... Just judging by how the way the game looked like the uh, the the few shots that they released, you know, years back, it's you know it's a vastly different game, and I think they're trying to keep everything close to the chest because they they know they got a lot writing on it, and I think what yeah, they want to do is just surprise everyone in the end because I don't I honestly don't know. Uh, so you don't think there's anything necessarily uh, going? I mean, I know it's just speculation, but necessarily going wrong over there. You think it's just like, hey, we want to make sure we got a product that people are going to appreciate and, and like before yeah. we drop something like this and take all this heat because it's almost like no matter what they do, they're going to take heat from the, the diehard old school oh, guys yeah. that played uh, Final Fantasy like us on PlayStation. I, I agree, but I believe we're all looking at rose tinted glasses because I mean, if even if you look back, I love Final Fantasy VII. I played that game so many times when I was like 14 years old when the game came out. Uh, I, yeah. I loved it as a kid, but I mean, the the game itself. I mean, it was. For as much uh, mounted effort that they have, you know, you can still pick out its flaws, you know, inconsistent art yeah. styles like you have uh, poor localization in some areas and, you know, some things just didn't make sense. And also a big thing I remember reading this was years back because people have been demanding a remake for God knows how long, you know, and, uh, you know, even when they were considering it, it's like we were still in the wake of everything that happened after September 11th. And how are you? going to how are you going to heroize a group of freedom fighters that literally blew up a a facility yeah you know to, to so like now you're and and that's the thing that they were kind of told uh 
I wouldn't say toe in the line, but it, uh, because they haven't done anything yet, but it's a very political thing. Like, so obviously you could see that they're remaking it and it, uh, you know, they showed the initial scenes of them going to the, the factory and, and they're going to do what they do. But I think they're also trying to make sure that they write it respectfully that it doesn't offend or make anybody angry or hurt anybody, especially with what's gone on. Because we have ever since September 11th, excuse me, uh, we have a totally different mindset. And I think that has a lot to do with it too. Cause I mean that, that right there, that's the hook in the story. And, um, and that's also what drives the game forward. So if they don't do that right, then they pretty much lost everybody with the rest of the game, no matter how well written it is and how amazing the gameplay is. If they don't, if, uh, I, I don't know. I really, That's I really good, couldn't say anything. That is a good point. I mean, that, some YouTube YouTubers will talk about it, but how, you know, when Cloud goes to the, uh, with Eris and Tifa, and he has to dress like a woman, and then there's a mm-hmm. whole, you know, the the, the, you know, the, the honey house or whatever, mm-hmm. honeybee house. I mean, these you really see, and they say, well, then this era, it was a little bit different. It was like 97, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, 96 when it came out. I mean, it's not... Uh, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but I guess it was a completely different time. It's like you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, even that's a good, great point about the Freedom Fighters. They go in there and they blow this thing up, and at some point, I can't remember what happens, but the Sector Eight plate falls through. Yeah. What? What? And kills everybody. Yeah. Just yeah. The poor people, you know. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, how how different is it? I mean, I guess that is a hard thing to kind of quantify what people's different viewpoints are so yeah they may be held up on that how do we do this i think if they just almost just hey we're gonna do the exact same story but on a on a um remake with new graphics and a new fighting uh style or whatever mm-hmm. it ironically it may be safer like hey we're just doing the game that was already there we're giving you what you want you know we're not trying to make a statement we're not trying to do anything, but this was the game that was there. We're, we're, we're kind of giving this back to the, the, um, the old school fans, you know, instead of just trying to make money on a new game. Right. And I believe that's what it is. Like what you're saying, I think that's what they're doing. And I, and personally, you know, if I was like one of the, the leads for the game and not releasing much of the content, because everybody knows the game already, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, you can show all this stuff, but I mean, Maybe they want to wow these people with all this stuff when it does come out or when they have a pretty solid uh, game before release where they could kind of start showing a little bit more for marketing purposes. And it's it, to me, I also, I've always found it kind of uh, agitating where you got these people that they're showing off this game, but it's like years and years and years away from from it uh, going to be released or, you know, like the time is indeterminate and in doing so they're like, they're showing all these things like the Peter Molyneux complex, like, Oh, I promise you this and this and this for fable. And then you get, you know, half of the stuff that he promised. And a lot of people were upset and like, well, what are the things that you promised? Oh, you know, like development things. And that's a very natural thing. Like development, you know, some of the timelines get so screwed up that they have to cut content or they bite off more than they can chew and they have to cut off more content and then they still try to streamline whatever they can. Um, you know, whether because it's a technological issue, a money issue or whatever. So uh, I actually don't mind that they're not showing anything for Final Fantasy yet. And I think also because they're trying to still give more support for 15. Yeah, true. So... Um, that might be why and then they're doing so successful with 14 i think that's why they're just they're just sticking with everything until when it's done and that's i guess i could respect that i mean yeah i mean i would like to see updates on the game just 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 out of interest but i'm not uh holding my breath for it yeah uh, while you're talking about it, there's so many different games i want to discuss with you that we'll just we could go on forever we're already at about a 50 minute mark or so but I did want to bring this up this was a whole different um, whole different discussion and I just happened to read this the other day uh, and it's straight out of the news here I'll shout out to Panama City Beach where we're broadcasting from uh, so uh, where are you at by the way which state are you I'm in, in uh, 
Ogden, Utah. So station, okay. yeah, my wife and I, well, that's my last duty station. I was at Hill Air Base, but I separated in May. Okay, so in Utah, okay. Uh, so this comes out, this is from the News Herald, like I said, and it says compulsive, the title is compulsive video game playing could be a mental health problem. And I was going to do a whole new smooth, whole different smooth roundings on this, but I said, well, well, I got you here. Be interesting to hear your comments on this. So I'll summarize here. So in the latest revision, it says to a disease classification manual, the World Health Organization said Monday that compulsively, this is a key word, compulsively, Playing video games now qualifies as a mental health condition. Okay, so then it kind of goes through and it says uh, classifying gaming disorder as a separate addiction will help governments, families, and healthcare workers be more vigilant to repair and identify risk. The agency and other experts are quick to note that cases of the condition are still very rare, with no more than 3% of all gamers believed to be effective. Okay. And it kind of says that just because your kid or whoever plays a lot of video games doesn't necessarily mean they're addicted. Mm-hmm. And let me find the the spot here that it kind of. So when they're engrossed in when these individuals are engrossed in internet games, certain pathways in their brains are triggered in the same direct and intense way that a drug addict's brain is affected by a particular substance. The game prompts a neurological response that influences pl- feelings of pleasure and reward, and the result in the extreme is manifested as addictive behavior. And finally, it just says, yeah, however, estimated 2 to 3% of gamers might be infected. So the only reason that they bring this up is it just kind of still to this day, I mean, I, I don't want to make light, make, take this lightly. I mean, I'm sure there's a very real thing out there. But sometimes I just can't help but think that video games are picked on, you know, because of this kind of stuff. Could be a mental health problem. Compulsive gameplay. And so, okay, this guy's compulsive video game playing. Oh, he's got a disease. But if, you know, like, like it says, uh, let's see. The neurological response that influences feelings of pleasure and reward mm-hmm. and the result in the extreme is manifest addictive behavior. What about the guy that goes fishing every day? And I get a sense of reward when I pull in a big fish or I throw the cast out line. I'm waiting, waiting. I got patience. Boom. Or I get a sense of reward and I got a big fish. Nobody writes a story about, oh, compulsive fishermen could be an addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm saying? There's yeah, so okay. many different things that can, anything that you do compulsively is bad, but they just mm-hmm. kind of pick on video games and they just kind of get rubs me the wrong way. And like, you, right. what do you think? And Am I off base here or what? You're not. I mean, it's still with the, again, with the stigma, you know, the, the nerdy thing. Um, yeah. But... I can see where that's an issue. If I remember reading on the article, it had a lot to do with, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, like uh, the, the the South Koreans when they play. There are a lot of uh, – not a lot of players, but there have been reports of players that they play to exhaustion. So those are the – They literally like, died. The, literally, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, again, that those are the extreme cases, but those are maybe the ones that they're really talking about. There are those people that that's all they do and, it, you know, it consumes their life. But, again, like you said, there are other – things that people can do like fishing or other uh uh risk reward type uh scenarios that you know that it's so gratifying that they continue and they continue and they continue um it's just uh i like how that article was written though because it seemed very non-biased like yeah like hey there is there is this, you know, like they have classified it, but mind you, you know, don't be worried. This is for like an extremely small following of people that this is affecting. And so I'm glad that the author was uh, considerate of that instead of, you know, oh, video games are, you know, another scapegoat in, in, in the pile kind of thing. Um, yeah. But uh, there are those people that they just like, it, it just consumes them. Um there could be worse things, but I guess it's just I've always felt like playing in moderation. But I had, like you said, there are those times where I could play a game and I'll play for hours and not even realize it. And then I'll have moments of, you know, these lulling moments where I won't play for a couple of weeks anything. Yeah. And then maybe an hour here or two there. But it's it's good to see that it is being acknowledged that acknowledged that there are those that can be detrimentally affected just because they have no self-control. Right. But so. there's some underli- under some other underlying problem, probably not. The video games didn't cause this. 
I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm not a health expert, obviously, but, mm-hmm. you know, my main thing is just, you know, the, the skydiver, the thrill seeker. That's what he is when he's compulsive. He's not a mental problem that this guy needs to address because he likes to jump out of planes over and over again. As he's that, you know, they don't really, you don't really hear that stigma toward it. But this, that's really my point to it. I, I agree the article is well written and it's not biased. I think it just tells facts, which is, which is good. Um, and it is from the News Herald, and I do like what they do. They seem to be pretty just straightforward, and it's kind of our local news here as well. That I, I watch, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't watch national news, or if I do, you just kind of whatever side you're on, you just kind of always take it with a grain of salt. So local news, that's kind of always tell my wife. Once it affects me, I'll, I'll start caring about it. There's never been anything on the on the news that I've ever on the national news that I've watched that's changed my life. I couldn't tell you a big news story other than 9/11, as we mentioned, since you know 9/11 that's changed my life. So it's really just maybe do nothing but worry or get mad or you know something silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the, these type of news stories, they are real informative, but that's just really, I mean, there's no point. I just don't like that. It's usually from people that don't play games as, Oh, you know, Oh, yeah. I've heard of the kid that, you know, he just kind of, is not himself when he doesn't play video games for, you know, when we go somewhere, he doesn't have his game. Well, it's like, that's what he's developed into his life. That could be anything, yeah. anything you've kind of made the life pattern out of. You're going to kind of, when you get thrown out of that pattern, you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Shoot, oh yeah. Just I agree. Coffee in the morning. You know, like, oh, I didn't get my coffee now. I'm kind of irritable. Oh, you silly. You got to get your coffee. You know, nobody goes, what? You know, I'm so sick. You got to get these games out of his life. You know, mm-hmm. nobody goes, we got to get this coffee out of your life. This is just serious. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like it has a still, I mean, maybe I just see this and I go, okay, there's a stigma. And then I'm, you know, I'm kind of leaning more towards that, even though, like you said, that the article itself did not portray that. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to, to run that by. Yeah, I I I do think it's interesting. Um, but yeah, and you're right. I I do agree with you because with uh, you know, it's just I think it's because there's still that mentality. That's still that stigma, like to you know, lack of a better term, the baby boomers. I would like to say they're the ones that found like you know playing video games is just a waste of time. Yeah. My father being one of them. You know, growing up my whole life, my dad would just completely why are you doing this? You're wasting your time. You're not doing anything with your life. X, Y, Z. And I find it extremely ironic because he's never, you know, he played video games when he was like in his early twenties, you know, he played Nintendo, but I find it ironic that he got introduced into civilization five by my little brother. And now that's all my dad plays. And (laughs) he first started playing, he literally played for like 14 hours straight and didn't realize it. And then I get an angry phone call at seven uh, at like, you know, at three o'clock the next day that he played till five 30 in the morning that day. and didn't get any sleep because he got so hooked on the game. He was mad at me that I introduced him to it when it was really our, my little brother. And I'm like, well, whose fault is this? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. that's all you buddy. But yeah, no, I, I, I get it. It's just, uh, I think it's because of the older generation that they, that was not something that was a part of their life. Uh, and then they're, they're using that, you know, against us, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you want to take, uh, talk about family, I remember my, uh, father, you know, talking about uh, World of Warcraft came out and it was like 2004. I got it for Christmas and I just, uh, where, where I was at 2004. Um, I know I was, I think I was in between, I thought I was in a transition period. I think I was at home, just got back from full sale and it's in a transition period before I went left to go to Memphis to work at the Fox. But so I was just all day, man. Just, I love that game was perfect game to get you hooked. I mean, they had oh, the yeah. formula. I mean, it's proven. They got the formula. And so dad is like, you know, what are you doing? You know, kind of the same thing. You're not doing anything. You need to get out there and, you know, you're going to missing out on opportunities and making friends and networking. Like, no, I got a whole party of like five people right here. Dad, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we all got our roles in life here, you know, but no, but, um, you know, but on, on the flip side for him, you know, he's a big outdoors and big hunter, you know, and he even told my my mom, before they got married, he said, you know, if you're going to marry me, just understand this. Between, you know, September or whenever hunting season, September to January, I'm going to be hunting every day. I'm out the door, you know. And so when he's hunting, he's away from the family. You know, at least when I'm playing a game, I'm here. In fact, I think one of my uh, girlfriends told my mom back in the day, uh, my mom was like, oh, so, you know, something came up. Marcus likes video games and all that. And my mom's like, yeah, I understand 
Steve always goes hunting and all that. And then she even said, well, at least he's here, you know, when I, if I want to talk to him or if he needs, if I need anything, you know, and she's like, yeah, that's a good point. But nobody says, oh, you got to slow down on this hunting. That's an addiction. There's a compulsion. We need to check to see if this is a mental disorder, you know, this kind of stuff. And it's just the newest, it's just the newest thing. It's electronic. And I understand there should be some concern with any type of behavior like that. And, and video games is something new. It's not, not really understood. And it is a lot easier to say, well, he's just sitting there and pressing buttons on a controller. At least when you're outdoors, you're learning to survive and, you know, bash something over the head, bring it home, you know. But uh, so you're doing something beneficial there. So that's probably why it's not that, that stigmatized. But but anyway, just just an interesting food for thought there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, man, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up, man. I appreciate you being on. A lot of good uh, knowledge there for anybody that is interested in video games, writing a book, and just good to have your thoughts. Uh, a lot of inter- interesting insight on some of these games, where these developers are, and just just all around uh, video game knowledge, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's great coming back memory lane because it's been so long for me since I've been in the industry, but I love being able to talk shop with you about this and uh you know giving you my perspective of what i used to know hopefully it was accurate enough and <laughs> people enjoyed what i have to say i mean if uh they tell me i'm full of uh crap then i apologize ahead of time i will <laughs> i will fix that if the next time i talk to you <laughs> <laughs> cool man no i think it's great man but yeah dude we'll definitely try to get this thing more uh normalized man you're welcome on here anytime and uh a lot of good insights, like I said, on the, uh, I mean, I, I want to talk to you right even now. Like I want to just like burst off into a couple of games that I want to get your insight on, but we'll save it for the next time. All right. And, uh, get it done that way. But I appreciate you guys listening and, uh, we'll talk to you later.